All right, everybody have your Bibles? We're going to be getting into the Bible, and uh, I know you say, well, Anel, isn't that what's expected in church? Uh, I believe that today is going to be a little bit different. I believe that we're going to be digging into the Scriptures, and I really believe that God is going to speak to us in a very special, extraordinary way. I really believe that these are times that we need to go deeper than the basic evangelistic series doctrines. God is calling us to search his word of God to understand his will like never before. So I have a question to ask you. Why are you at church today? We love the Lord. We love the Lord. Amen. It's Sabbath. What else? To learn. To worship God. Now let me ask you a question. Did you come to church today to pay tithe? While I'm here, right? <laughs> Did you come to church today to listen to the praise music? Did you come to church today so you could participate in Sabbath school? Did you come to church today to listen to Anel Kanda preach? Yes. <laughs> you came to church today to hear the word of God. Yes. Amen. You came to church today to worship in giving. Amen? You came to church today to understand his will more. Folks, we've got to get out of this paradigm where we look to uh, the various parts of the church service as being sort of um, trivial things that need to be removed. Folks, I want you to understand something. Every part of the church service is worship. You hear what I just said? It's worship. Even when I'm preaching, it's not just an Elkanda preaching. It is the word of God being open. It is the spirit who is communicating to us. I never forgot one day HMS Richards was preaching this powerful sermon. And everyone would come out all over town to hear HMS Richards preach. And one day he was preaching this powerful sermon. And in the middle of it, he stops and he says this. You must think that there is something special about me, don't you? You must think that there is something extraordinary about my talents. And then he said this, there is nothing special about me. Folks, it's all about the message. Amen? It is all about the message of God. And this is why we're here. We're here to understand the message of God, the will of God. So why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into this rapid fire. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. And right now, Lord, I sense that you're calling us just for our hearts to be silent before you, to be still. Lord, thank you for that promise in Psalm 46, 10 that says, Be still and know that I am God. Amen. Father, thank you that we can sit at your feet this, this morning, this Sabbath, and experience transforming power through your Spirit. Jesus, we pray and ask that all the distractions would be gone and we would receive the present blessing that you have for us. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. In Jesus' holy name I pray, and we ask all these things. Amen. I'm going to tell you about an experience I had, and the experience took place this week. And I was uh, going to lunch with one of my friends, and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of places around series that you can actually go to lunch. Um, it's not like Modesto. You have to get on the freeway and drive out, and you got some more restaurants. So sometimes I will go to Rayleigh's. 
And Rayleigh's has a little deli where they can make delicious vegetarian sandwiches. And uh, it fills you up, too. And so I, I walked out of the car with my friend. And as we walked out, my friend takes a glow track, a piece of literature, and he walks over to the car that's adjacent to us. He hands the guy a glow track, and he says, thank you. And he's about to walk away when the guy says, are you guys Christians? And we said, yes, we are. And he's like, I want to talk to you guys. So we turn around. And he was a, a, a Persian man. He probably was in his late 50s. And he says, I want to talk to some Christians right now. And we say, okay, we're some Christians. Go ahead. And he said, you know, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm becoming an atheist. And he says, I have some questions to ask you. I said, okay. And he said, you know, I had a niece, and I don't have any children. This niece was like our own daughter, very special to us. And she prayed and she loved Jesus, but eventually she got cancer and she died. And we prayed for this young girl. We loved her, and we got our niece pleading with God to answer our prayer, and she died. And he says, let me ask you a question. If there is a God in heaven, why couldn't he answer her prayers? And then he continues talking, and he says, you know, I work for the justice system. I work in the courts. I'm a linguist. And he says, let me tell you something. I will go to courts, and I will see guilty men get away scotch-free. And they make excuses. And he says, what about Saddam Hussein? I mean, he ended up getting hanged, but he ended up, uh, he was responsible for the murder of, of many Kurds. What about Hitler? And he just began to talk, and the more he talked, he got more emotional. And he says, let me ask you a question. Where is the justice in this world? And then my friend says, oh, no, go ahead and answer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at that moment I was like, okay. I was like, here's the thing. I said to him, and the spirit took over. It was just powerful, just to see what happened. And I said, brother, I want you to understand something. There was even a day when Jesus Christ asked the question, why? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was getting things undeserved placed upon him. When he died for your sin, and he died for my sin, when he was suffering the abuse of wicked men, he did nothing to those men. And even he in the garden asked, why? On that cross, he said, why, Father? And I said, to ask the question why is a perfectly legitimate question to ask. I said, right now in this earth, we don't have all the answers, but one day God promises us that there will be a resolution. And I said, brother, there's one thing. There's one thing that would be terribly sad is if your niece is in heaven one day and you're not there. And I forgot that man began to break down. He began to cry. And he says, I know that God called you guys here. And he says, I've walked away. And I said, let's pray. And we prayed and the spirit of God just blessed that prayer. And folks, I want you to understand something. There's a lot of people who are asking that question why? When they look at our world today, they see a lot of things that cannot be explained. And they wonder how there can be a good and loving just God when they look at our planet and they see the tragedies and the miseries that exist in this world. And we have our typical answers that we can give. Well, we'll say things like, well, Satan is in this world and he is an antagonist towards the people of God and the things of God. The Bible makes it very clear 
that he is also responsible. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, not that not this woman who has been bound for 18 years by Satan be loosed on the Sabbath day. Jesus made it very clear in his ministry he was healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. He was very aggressive with pointing out that the devil was responsible for a lot of the woes that exist in this planet. So number one, we also have to, we deal with an antagonist by the name of Satan. Number two, people make choices in this world that lead to tragedies. I never forget, sometimes people ask me the question, they'll say, they say, Anel, if God is so good, why is it that there's little kids starving in Africa? You know what I will say to them? I'll tell you why little kids are starving. Because of the decision of selfish men. There are groups of men and women there who will actually block aid coming to those little children who need help. And it's usually Christian groups that are trying to get in there. People make choices in this world that affect us. So number one, we deal with Satan. Number two, we deal with self. And number three, we deal with the consequences of sin that has affected our nature and this world. Completely random. After the flood, there was this cascading effect upon this world where randomness and disorder and chaos begin to exist in the natural system. That's why you can go out into the ocean and you can see a, a storm brewing for no apparent reason. There is no reason for that. Sin has affected our planet. And so taking these dynamics into consideration, we begin to understand a little bit of what's wrong with our world today. But folks, to help us understand a little bit more, we're going to do a contrast. Now you may think to yourself, Anel, I know where this sermon is going. You're wrong, you do not. You do not. In order to understand a little bit more about this planet, we're going to do a contrast and understand a little bit more about heaven. Now take your Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to understand the dynamics of heaven. The dynamics of heaven. Matthew chapter 6. Let's start with verse 8. Twice, actually, Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. Once in the Mount of Blessings. And number two, when the disciples actually asked him the question, how do we pray? And notice Jesus doesn't say you speak in tongues. He said, okay, let me teach you about prayer. Take a good look at Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, pray. Our Father in heaven, our Father where? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your what? Will. Do not forget that word. Your will be done on earth as it is in what? Heaven. Notice what Jesus says right here. Don't miss this point. We are actually praying, according to the prayer of Jesus, that we need to ask for God's will to take place on this planet as it already takes place where? Heaven. Because earth is a place where God's will does not take place. That's why we have to pray for it. But there is a place where God's will does take place, and what place is that? Heaven. So let's look at this right now. Let's make a definition. Heaven is a place where God's will permeates all of life. Amen? Does that make sense, yes or no? Now take your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 10. And you're going to see a progression in this. And I promise you this, you will be blessed. Let's go to verse 21. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Watch what the Bible says right here. Not everyone who says to me, what? Lord, Lord, and what type of people is this talking about? Hindus? Buddhists? Muslims? 
No, it's people who call Jesus Lord. And what type of people call Jesus Lord? Christians. Now watch what these Christians are saying to Jesus right here. It's very important. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of what? Heaven. Jesus is showing there's a group of people who are not going to make it to heaven. And let me explain why. Look what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the what? The will of my Father in what? Heaven. Notice what Jesus is saying right here, okay? We're, we're going in a sequence. I want you to see the logical sequence. Jesus says, only those who do the will of God will be allowed into heaven. Okay, don't miss this point. Only those who do the will of God will be allowed in heaven. Now continue. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And cast out many demons in your name? Haven't we preached many sermons and did many funerals and Sabbath schools for you, Lord? And deacon work and all sorts of things. And verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, now we're building to this point. I need you to have your thinking caps on, okay? We looked at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, hey... We're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So heaven is a place where what's being done? God's will is being done. Now notice what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, I can't let you in because you don't do the will of God. You practice lawlessness. So synonymous with the will of God is what? God's law. Now just pay attention. We're building to something. Heaven is not just a place where we can say God's will is being done, but God's law is being done. Are we tracking so far, yes or no? In fact, take your Bible, go to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to reinforce this a little bit more, and you're going to see where this is leading. You're going to see where this is leading. Matthew chapter 12. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12. Thank you for having a keen mind. Mark chapter 12. And we are going to verse 34. Let's go to verse 28. Then one of the scribes, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? This man who heard Jesus completely silence all the, all the, the fakes and the phonies goes to Jesus and says, I like the way this man thinks. I got a good question for him. He goes up to Jesus and he says, what is the best commandment of all? This man was a scribe. He had studied the laws, over 612 different laws. So you can imagine that there was dispute about which law was more important. So he asked a question that was very fundamental and very, uh, uh, he wanted the answers to. And he says, what is the greatest commandment of all, Jesus? Watch Jesus' reply. It's very important. You're going to see the progression. The first of all these commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first or greatest commandment. Now watch verse 31. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as your what? Self. There is no other commandment than this. Jesus says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? It's to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is nothing greater than this. Now watch what the man says right here. It's very interesting. Watch what the man says right here. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. There is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now watch verse 34. It's key. 
Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, Now what did Jesus state to the man when the man asked him a question? He stated the principles of the law. And then when the man affirmed it, he says, Yes, Lord, this is right. Jesus said, You're not far from heaven. Okay, do you see the progression so far, yes or no? Notice this. The will of God is done in heaven. The will of God is synonymous with the law. The law is broken up, you can say, into two principles, love for your neighbor and love for who? God. And when the man recognizes and affirms it, Jesus said, you got it. You're just, you're, you're just around the corner from heaven. Now here's the interesting thing. Do you know where Jesus quoted from? He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know why that's very interesting? Because this is right before the children of Israel were about to enter into the Holy Land. Right before they were about to enter into the heavenly, the, uh, the, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, God stops Moses and says, Moses, I want you to talk to the people and tell them something so they understand what to do. And Moses says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Notice, when this man affirms and understands this, Jesus says, hey, guess what? You're not far from the heavenly Canaan. Are we tracking so far, yes or no? Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question. Heaven is a place where what is being done? God's will. And God's will is synonymous with his what? Law. So heaven is a place where what is being done? God's law. Okay? And the law is divided into two principles, which is what? Love what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your what? Neighbor as you love yourself. So in other words, these two principles permeate all of heaven right now. This is very important. People are so interested in just like the, the, the colors and the, the flying animals, or I don't know, flying animals, whatever, but just like clouds and, uh, you know, being able to travel, but they don't even understand how to even live in heaven, what the dynamics are. So what permeates all of heaven right now, the way that heaven runs, is based upon the two principles of loving God maximally and to love your neighbor or love others as you love yourself. This is what heaven's all about. You know, Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ, one of the reasons why God can't take people to heaven right now, she says, because it would be hell to them. They'd get there. And they would be so just turned off by the selflessness that exists there. And all the praise and gratitude and the uplifting of others. And that these people would run from the presence of God. Run from the presence of holiness. Now how, let me ask you a question. How many people know who Christopher Hitchens is? Raise your hand if you do. Christopher Hitchens? I'm glad you guys don't know who he is. He's an atheist. He's a published atheist. And he debates a lot of Christians. Okay, that's a good thing. You're not reading any of his books. Excellent. Okay. One day he was in a debate. He's a staunch atheist, and he was in a debate with Todd Friel, who is a Christian philosopher. And Todd begins to ask him a series of questions in this public debate. I believe it's still on YouTube. And he says to him, he says, he says, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you keep the commandments of God? And Christopher Hitchens replies sarcastically, absolutely not. And why would I? And then the man says, let me ask you a question. Have you committed sin? Christopher Hitchens replies, that's none of your business. 
The, the, the Christian philosopher asked men, have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever murdered? Have you done any of these things? Have you stolen? Have you killed? Have you done any of these things? Have you taken the Lord's name in blasphemy? And the guy, Christopher Hitchens, is just upset, and he says, absolutely, I've done every one of those sins. Todd asked him a very interesting question. He says, don't you want to go to heaven one day? Christopher's response was very interesting. He said, why would I want to go to that place? A place of praise, a place of gratitude and selflessness? It'd be like hell to me. Those are exact words. It'd be like hell to him. So this is very interesting to understand. I want you to understand we're laying a foundation and you're going to see exactly where it's leading, okay? You're going to see exactly where it's leading, okay? I want to just reiterate to you guys. Number one, heaven is a place where what is being done? God's will is being done. God's will is synonymous with his, what? Law and God's law is broken up into two principles, which are what? Love God with all your heart and to love what? Your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, this is very good. Now we understand this. This is where the rebellion began to take place. The rebellion in heaven took place when an angel, a beautiful angel by the name of what? Lucifer violated those principles. And that's why when you read Isaiah 14, God says this, you have said in your what? Heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will be like the Most High. What is the common denominator in every one of those phrases that Lucifer was stating in his heart? Not just I. I will. Okay, let's understand this a little bit more. The violation in heaven began to take place when this angel said, I will do what I want to do. I will be completely autonomous from God and the kingdom of heaven and from the government of heaven. I will do what I want. I will go up and down into heaven. I will call the shot. I will make my own decisions and I will affect everybody else because of me. Okay, now take your Bible. Go to 1 John chapter 3. You're going to see where this is leading. I promise you. Hang on, hang on. 1 John chapter 3. And when you read it, when you get it, it's going to hit you upside the head. 1 John chapter 3. Let's start with verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits what? Lawlessness, okay? So what is the definition of sin? Lawlessness or the breaking of God's law. Let's continue. Remember the context. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. There is no what? No, no, tell me the definition of sin. In him there is no what? Lawlessness. Let's continue. Whoever abides in him does not commit what? Lawlessness. Whoever commits lawlessness has neither seen him nor known him. Now watch verse 7. Little children, do not let... No one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteousness, just as he is righteous. He who commits what? Lawlessness is of the what? The devil for the devil has what from the very beginning? Sinned from the beginning. And according to the context, what is the definition of sin? Lawlessness. The devil broke the law in what? Heaven. Now, many people ask themselves the question, how do you know that there is a law in heaven? 
Ask him the one question. How did Lucifer sin in heaven? Because sin, by the very definition, is what? Lawlessness. Hang on. We're leading to something, you guys. We're leading to something. Don't miss this. The devil sinned from the what? Very beginning. He broke the what from the very beginning? Now I'm going to ask you a question. What law did he break? The youth are not allowed to answer. What law did he break? I want you to give me a specific law and tell me what law he broke. And I will tell you from the scriptures what law he broke. Thou shall not covet. What else? Okay, you say thou, he didn't love his neighbor. He didn't love the Lord. He what? He put himself above, the, above God. Do you know Jesus actually points out which commandment he broke specifically? Take your Bible, go to John chapter 8. You're going to see this and why this is very important, okay? Jesus actually points out what commandment the devil broke. Take your Bible, go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, let's go to verse 42. Are we all there? It's page 1035 in the seminar Bibles. John chapter 8, starting with verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would what? Love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Verse 44, it's key. You are of your father the what? The devil. That Jesus had accused him of being born out of fornication. And they said, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, wrong. Your father is somebody else. You're going to see where this is leading. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you wanted to. He was a what from the beginning? What commandment did the devil break from the beginning? Thou shall not kill. Now let me ask you a good question, and the youth are not allowed to answer. How did Jesus commit murder in the very beginning? How did Lucifer, <laughs> you know what, <laughs> I'll tell the dentist story, I'm still feeling the effects of this, okay, have mercy on me, amen, the church is about mercy, how did Lucifer commit murder from the very beginning, how did he commit murder from the very beginning, by the way, what's the definition of murder, unjustified killing, Unjustified killing. That is the definition of murder, and that's actually the definition of standard Hebrew text in the Exodus chapter 20. Murder is unjustified killing. How did the devil commit murder from the beginning? Jesus pointed it out. John says, look, he was a, a sinner from the very beginning. He sinned from the very beginning. And Jesus said, yep, he was a murderer from the beginning. I'm asking you a question. How was he a murderer? Yes, how about you, Dan? Angry with his father. Everyone take your Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 5. You're going to find out. And many people will say, wait, didn't he just take the son of God's life? Think about this. The Bible says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. But that's talking about the foundation of planet Earth. Jesus says he was a murderer even before then. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And if you're there, go ahead and say Amen. Matthew chapter 5, and let's start with 
Okay, verse 17. You have to pay attention to context so you'll know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Do not think that I came to destroy the what? The law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now watch this. So he's talking about what's the context? What's he talking about? The what of God? Law of God. He begins to um, exalt the law of God like it says in Psalms. He will magnify the law. He brings a magnification to it. Now pay attention to verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not what? And whoever murders will be in danger of what? Judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of judgment. According to Jesus, when he magnifies the commandment of thou shalt not murder, he takes it in and he says, let me tell you what murder is all about. It is hating your brother without justification. Folks, I want you to understand something. When John said that devil sinned from the very beginning and Jesus points out that he was a murderer from the very beginning, what did Jesus mean about the devil? He hated God without a what? Without a cause. Folks, do you guys understand this? That God did not cause the fall of Lucifer. The Bible points it out. That he hated God without a cause. There was no justification for it. Many people try to wrap their minds around and say, wait a second, how is it that this perfect being could fall? Folks, I like what Ellen White says right here in Great Controversy. She says this, it is impossible to explain the origin of sin as to give a reason, don't forget that word, reason for its existence. Yet enough may be understood concerning both the origin and the final disposition of sin to make fully manifest the justice and benevolence of God in all his dealings with evil. Nothing is more plainly taught in scripture that God was in no wise responsible for the entrance of sin. That there was no arbitrary withdrawal of divine grace, no deficiency in the divine government that gave occasion for the uprising of rebellion. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse be found or cause to be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Our only definition of sin is that it is given in the word of God. It is the transgression of the law. It is the outworking of principles at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of divine government. Folks, I want you to understand something. She says this, to defend or to try to explain and give a reason for sin's entrance into this world is to justify this. Now, you say, what do you mean, Anel? Think of it like this, okay? Think of it like this. In order to have an excuse for something you do, you need to have a reason for something you do. In order to have a reason for something you do, and the very definition of reason is basically the capacity to make sense of something, you need to be able to make sense of something. Okay? So if the devil and all sin itself can be linked to God, there must be a justification for its existence. And so God would be blamed. But, very clear from the scriptures, that there was no cause for Lucifer to sin. Don't miss this point, folks. To excuse sin is to give a reason for sin's existence, and to reason it is to make, a sense, to make sense out of it. Hence, if sin itself is nonsensical, therefore no reason for it to exist, exists, and because of it, because there is no reason, it is 
unjustified. Did you get that? Folks, I want you to understand something. Sin does not have a reason for its existence. And because of it, because of it, we will see very clearly that God was in no wise responsible for everything that existed, all the pain. You know, a lot of people get to heaven one day during the thousand years, and we hear sometimes Adventists who have sort of a superficial understanding, and they'll say things like this. Oh, when we get to heaven, everything will be explained in heaven. Like when we tripped and fell, and we bruised our knees, and when Aunt Susie died, and when I got cancer, and when, um, uh, you know, my brother was murdered, and, uh, you know, when all these things, there's going to be a justification for it. Folks, I want you to understand something. There will never be a justification for sin. Never. When we get to heaven, what will there be a justification of? Of God's goodness that he brought out of sin. Do you understand, yes or no? The thousand years will be what God did in spite of sin. There will be no justification why murder took place. There will be no justification for why, you know, pains and wounds existed. Sin of itself, by definition, does not have an explanation and because of it, there will not be a scene of justification, but there will be a scene of vindication of what God did in spite of it and how he stepped in and brought goodness and kindness and healing and how he helped to save you. Folks, we will come out of the thousand years and we will say, praise God, Lord. You did everything. You did everything for my benefit. And I know, Lord, you didn't cause this, but you brought good out of this. You brought good out of this. And why is this very important, folks? Because in today's culture, we have learned very well, very well to make excuses. Do you know what an excuse is? An excuse, by definition, the etymology is basically two words, two uh, parts of it, X and Qs. The word X simply means to be left out or to remove or to expunge, and the word Qs comes from the word accusation. In other words, to remove accusation. To remove accusation. We are good at making excuses for a lot of things. We make excuses. You know, I was going online and I found some of the top reasons why, the top excuses that we make. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really great until I realized I make a lot of those excuses. <laughs> you know, I know what some of them are. Top excuses that people make. Ready? There we go. Probably don't need to write these down. We know them very well. I can't change myself. Want to hear another excuse that we make, one of the top excuses? I don't have time. Want to hear another excuse? I'm too young or I'm too old. Want to hear another excuse? I'm in a special situation. Want to hear another one? I was born this way. And my favorite, I'll do it tomorrow. Folks, we're really good at making excuses, amen? Let's just be honest about this. We're very good at making excuses. We make them every single day. And why is this very important? You'll see at the very end. Because the, great ex the greatest excuses we make is in connection to our spiritual walk with Jesus. Don't we give God so many excuses? You know, from the very beginning, you look at Adam. When Adam was caught, what did he say? 
That mean wife you gave me, she caused this problem. How about when Cain, Cain was messing with his brother. What did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? How about in the parable when Jesus was calling everybody to the wedding feast and they begin with one excuse, say, I can't be there, I got this, I got married, I got a brand new job, things are happening. They begin to make excuse. You know, we look good at, at, to everybody else, but folks, when it comes down to it, we are full of excuses. We are so full of excuses. We are so good at deflecting blame from people, from ourselves to others. We are very good at that. When something goes wrong, immediately we defend ourselves. We are excellent at this. And we teach our children to do this. This is something that is part of their, the nature that they inherited from us. I mean, think about this. You never tell a child, hey, stop sharing too much. You never tell a child, oh, stop being so good. You never tell, tell a child, hey, stop behaving so well. You tell a child, you need to share. You need to behave. You need to do what's right. Because children are born with the hereditary tendencies to evil, the proclivities to sin, just like we are. Folks, I want you to understand something. When we confront our children, they make excuses. And when God confronts us, we make excuses. And the second we make excuses, we are justifying what we did. Now, how many people have ever fallen into sin, and in your confession to God, you say, Lord, I just couldn't help myself. Or, Lord... God, you don't understand, this was happening and this was happening. As soon as we begin to make an excuse, we are justifying ourselves before God. And folks, it's not good people that make it to heaven. It's only forgiven people, amen? amen. You know, when I have, I have a little niece and nephew that I go home to visit, and, uh, you know, they're little kids, and I watch them sometimes, and I will see things happen. The older one, her name is Liana. And she has just a younger brother and sister, and they're, they're down there with her, you know, the age group and stuff. And many times, they'll get her mad, and I'll watch them, and she'll go up, and she'll just kick the nephew like this, and walk away, and I'll say, Liana, what did you just do? And she's like, he ran into my foot. <laughs> I said, are you serious about that? And she says, yes. I said, you kicked him on purpose. And she's like, no, I didn't. He ran into my foot. And I said, Liana, I saw your foot load. <laughs> and then you kicked her, him. And then she's like, you're right. You know, here's the thing. We say, well, kids, they make a lot of excuses. But folks, we make a lot of excuses. We make so many excuses in our spirituality. So many excuses to sin. We make so many excuses with our time. So many excuses with our witness. But at the end of this great controversy, there will be found not a single justification for the evil we have done. You will not see it. In fact, why this is very important, take your Bible, it's going to be our last verse. Romans chapter 3. Take a good look at verse 9. The first three chapters are basically Jesus, uh, Paul is saying, he says, look, the world is guilty because of God because it manifests the, the things of God. And the Jews were like, yep, the Gentiles are guilty. And then Paul turns around and says, Jews, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty. You don't have an excuse. Now watch what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under what? 
As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be what? Stopped. In other words, that word is also translated silenced. And the world may become guilty before God. Now you're saying, wait, God wants the world to be guilty? No. He's going to show at the very end that there was never a reason for sin's justification. In fact, do you know God asked the question why? You're saying, God asked a question why? Why would he ask the question why? He does ask the question why, we're told, in great controversy, and I'll share with you just a little bit. He will ask a question, and he will say why. Folks, and this is where it gets personal right here. There's more to the Seventh-day Adventist message than just reverence in the sanctuary. Now, I'm not the happy, clappy type, but folks, I want you to understand something. When people come into this church, and the first thing they hear is all the negative things taking place in this church, I promise you this, at the very end of time, you will see that there was not a justification for you to say those things. Amen. The Seventh-day Adventist message, when it comes down to it, is upholding Jesus Christ. Amen. Upholding the law of God that he has given us, an expression of his character, standing for what's right and true. The whole great controversy revolves around worship. But when we come in here and our, and our talking and our debates, they consist of the minors. We've completely lost sight of the message. Amen. And we make excuses for why we don't witness. God, you don't understand. I can't witness to this person. You will see that there was no justification for it. When it comes down to being faithful in your tithes and offerings, and you say, God, I couldn't do this, God would say, look, let me show you. There will be seen no excuse for it. When we see why we couldn't be faithful to our husband and wife, and there will be seen no excuse for our reasoning. Folks, you will see at the very end time, there will not be a justification for sin. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.